All right, we're going to get started, guys. Uh, we are in Revelation. Going to look at chapter 18 and then the first 10 verses of 19. We're going to look at, man, the fall of Babylon. After last, after last week, Kath said, oh, that was nice and light. <laughs> that, was, that was very encouraging. You know, and I, I felt like I thought, oh, man, I know it's so heavy. But you know what? What are you going to do, huh? I mean, I mean, this is the word of God, and mm. it must be, uh, I mean, obviously it is. It's what God wants us to, to know. And, you know, again, just to kind of say what I'd said before, that, um, you know, reading this and studying this, um, I'm always struck by the fact that the dispensational hermeneutic would read this and it have, would really have no application at all to them. This is something that's going to happen when the church has already been, you know, raptured according to their hermeneutic. And, and this is a future event only. And, uh, you know, it deals primarily with what's going on in the earth during the tribulation and so on and so on and so on. And I just think, what's the point? What's the point of reading it? What would be the point of studying it if, if that's all it applies to? Other than the fact when you get to the end and the Lord is victorious, that's awesome. But so we're not we're not reading it from that perspective. We're reading it from a from a completely different hermeneutic. So I'm going to go ahead and read straight through again this chapter and into chapter 19, uh, the first 10 verses. So I'm reading out of the ESV. And uh, if anybody didn't get notes, let me know, and I'll I'll gladly send them to you. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share... Sorry, I got distracted here. I got somebody in the waiting room. Lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repair her double, repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys her cargo anymore, buys their cargo anymore cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple silk, excuse me, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves." that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. 
The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men and sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeteers will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your church, your merchants were, were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. And after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Father, thank you tonight. Lord, that you are victorious, that you rule and reign tonight over the heavens and the earth. Thank you, Lord, that we are yours and we belong to you. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you've called us to be your own. Thank you that you brought us out of darkness into your light, Lord. Thank you that you saved us, Father, simply because of your great mercy and love and grace toward us in Christ. And tonight, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask you, Father God, to speak to our hearts, not just to our brain and our intellect, but to our hearts, Lord, that we would hear your voice, that we would hear the Spirit of God speak to the church in our day. Lord, that we would have grace to say yes to you in areas that may be difficult for us to say yes. And so we thank you, and we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So this, this chapter, Revelation 18, is, is, is going to be dominated by two angels and then a very loud voice from heaven. And so we see in verses 1 through 3 that this first angel descends from heaven um, with a, a commission given to him from, from heaven. And, and he comes with a, such a glory that it says that that he lights up the whole earth. This glory lights up the whole earth. So we're seeing now 
something of God's glory beginning to um, to affect the earth. And I think this is an interesting um, and important point is that through the book of Revelation, there is a kind of a progressive unveiling of Christ. Um, we see him in the beginning, obviously, as John sees him. And then as we, as we head into the, into the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, um, there are interludes where we hear, uh, we see heaven and, and we see what's going on in heaven. Um, and we see the lamb, in, for example, in chapter five, and we see the glory of the lamb in chapter four. But, but here we're seeing as an ongoing progressive unveiling of Christ. And so now as we hit chapter 18, it's actually now the glory of God is beginning to actually illumine uh, the earth, even though it's an angel now who has come from the presence of God. And we see that this angel pronounces the very same judgment that was declared <laughs> Revelation 14. And remember now, we're looking at, at, at reciprocal visions. We're looking at visions that are repeating, that, that these are visions that are, that are not one following another chronologically. We've been saying this ad nauseum to you guys but we're seeing the same, same thing from different vantage points again and again and again. And so now we're hearing in chapter 18 what was already declared in chapter 14. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, 14.8 of Revelation said. So again, we're going to talk tonight about this now, the fall the, the description of the fall of Babylon, the question we asked last week and tried to answer is, what does Babylon speak of? It's not speaking simply of the city. We know it is a metaphor for cities, perhaps, but more than even cities. It represents throughout history cities such as, as, as Rome in John's time, as Babel um, in, in, the, in the early in Genesis, in Daniel, in his Babylon that he was taken into of Nineveh, of Paris, of New York, of Hollywood. It represents all of these cities these of great influence who have shaped culture throughout human history. And, it's, it, and more than that, they have been used to broadcast the spirit of the age. And we know that, that actually what we're reading about when we, when we look at Babylon is we're actually seeing a description in the sense of a false church. Because we read in chapter 13 that the beast was commanding worship the second beast was commanding that the first beast be worshipped. And so we're seeing the, the people who have responded to the idolatry and to the demonic deception that was being propagated by the second beast to worship the first beast. So we're seeing, in a sense, a picture of a false church. I read a quote last week, and I've got it in the notes again, that at its, at its root, every pagan world empire is another incarnation of the same satanic spirits that will reach full intensity just before it shatters before the glory of the Lamb and goes to its final and ultimate destruction. And so now we are reading this record of the fall and, and the complete destruction of Babylon. And so we're not talking about the fall of a city only, although cities are obviously are going to be affected because the earth is going to be increasingly affected. But I really believe, and we'll talk about this in a moment, this has already started. This is already beginning, is that God is at work in his sovereignty, bringing about his plan to bring all things under the lordship of Christ in heaven and on earth. And so we're seeing now, even in our time, we're seeing God at, working to destroy this, this spirit of this demonic deception um, through his church and through, through the prayers of the saints, but mostly through the sovereign activity of God upon the earth. And so I'm not even, I don't even doubt that what we're experiencing right now as we've been going through these last two months of what we've been experiencing here of this Corona thing is not, it's the hand of God. It's, it's God at work in his sovereignty, undermining and destroying um, the power of the enemy upon the earth. Of course, we know that, that it's, it's not going to be complete until Christ returns. And in fact, it, it may be such that it's so subtle that we won't even recognize it at times. But there are going to be times when it's going to be very obvious. And I think we're going to see um, at some point in the future, a collapse probably of, of, econ of economies, um, the, the, at least the, the, if not the complete collapse, the depression of, of many of them to the extent that it's going to shake, um, it's going to shake the, the nations of the earth. 
So this, this great city's fall, which will, um, we're talking again, not just about a city, but about culture, will make her uninhabitable. It will no longer be a life of culture, but it's going to be a ghost town is being described here, really of demons and unclean spirits. And so, you know, I was thinking about this. I was praying. I was thinking, I don't know how about you guys, but I asked myself, Lord, it's like it's just getting darker and darker. It seems like it's getting more and more. Uh, the darkness is becoming more and more overt and more obvious. And I think this is what we're seeing. We're seeing this uninhabitable ruin of, of demonic, unclean spirits. It's, I mean, just think about now the activity through the media, through movies, through music, um, through celebrities, and how overt they are propagating this, this demonic lie. And they're proud of it, and they flaunt it, and they don't try to hide it. And it's in our face, and it's, it's, now, it's now we are demanded to acknowledge it as being acceptable and, um, and so on. And so this is a picture of this un uninhabitable ruin um, taking place. I think we're going to also see that tonight, this is a, there's a lot of Old Testament scripture here being quoted and being referred to. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel are going to continually be referred to. And so to begin with, through the prophets, we see that God declared his judgments throughout the Old Testament and that he would turn proud pagan cities into wastelands only occupied by beasts and demons. So turn with me to Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah a few times tonight. Begin with Isaiah 13. And I know that John had these in mind as he was writing. He was thinking of these things as he saw these visions. He's thinking of Isaiah's text. And he's thinking of um, Jeremiah. He says in Isaiah 13, we begin in verse 19. In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. There, ostriches will dwell, and there, wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers, and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. And so we know that John was, was thinking of this. This was in John's mind as he was seeing this vision. He, he remembered Isaiah's words. He remembered what was pro, pro, prophesied regarding the Chaldeans and, and Babylon. And, and, and now he's saying, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm seeing. So the focus of this angel in, in Revelation 18 is proclamation of doom is, is as Babylon becoming the destiny of a, a, a prison almost of d demonic and unclean spirit activity. And, and of course, what Babylon has appeared to be throughout its history in scripture is, 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 is a, a place that is it's masking its inward depravity with an outward beauty. And I think, again, we're going to talk about this probably in depth here in a minute, um, how it applies to us practically. But we can be seduced by the outward beauty of culture and what the world offers us. And, and, and God is telling us that it's masking a depravity that to him it will be ultimately judged because of its demonic um, origins and demonic um, uh, deception. It appears to be full of energy and full of wealth and full of, of commerce, business, excitement, culture, pleasure. It's, it's, it's the good life in people's minds but it only masks this inward emptiness and shallowness and depravity of immorality. And it's really, it is death for those who live there. And I asked myself as I was writing this out today, I thought, is that an overstatement? Is it really that bad? Or are we, am I overstating it? Am I taking the text too far? Because sometimes it's hard for us to really discern this because we are so bombarded with its pleasures. But I really believe that from God's vantage point, this is what he sees. 
and it is that which the false prophet, the, the second beast, uses to seduce the hearts of men, to cause them to worship the, the satanic throne of deception. And so it says that all the nations, all the kings in chapter 18, all of the merchants will be implicated because they'll be held accountable because Babylon has seduced them. And I also believe this is speaking of Jezebel, that spirit in Revelation 2.20, when the Lord Jesus speaking to the churches spoke about the woman Jezebel. You know, I think, again, we sometimes want to make that, we, we spiritualize this to the point of where it, we think it, it's a person, you know, somehow, or it represents, um, you know, maybe just a false prophetess of some kind or something. I remember from our charismatic crazy days, you know, somebody would have a spirit of Jezebel, you know, and I'm not denying that that couldn't be possible, that spirit is working in somebody, but I think it speaks of something, something much more. It's speaking of the whole spirit that's at work in the world today. It's, it's what Paul spoke of in Romans 1 when he said, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's, it's, the, it's the Jezebel spirit um, in the world, in culture, in society, um, that deludes the hearts of men. And again, you know, we have to say it's even affected us at times. It even, it pulls on our heart um, at times too. So is it an overstatement? Is it an over-exaggeration of this severity of drinking from the cup of what the world offers to say this? And I, and I thought of these texts, James 4.4, 4, this is what James says, and we know this text. He's speaking to the church. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, now, we've read that. I've read that a hundred times. You have too. And sometimes we think, ah, that doesn't make sense to me. How does this apply? This is how it applies. It applies in the context of Babylon. It applies in the context of what is we're reading in in. in in, in Revelation 17 and 18, of this spirit that's at work in, 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 the, in the age that we live in and throughout history, in, in the culture, through culture, and, and it's, it's, the, it's that which pulls on our hearts. And, and if we give ourselves to it, James warns us, it makes us an enemy of God. First John 2.15, John wrote this. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. These are radical black and white statements. These are statements that bother me. These are statements that, that I don't like to, to think about because I, at one point I think, I don't know if I fully understand that. It seems too extreme. It seems too, you know, black and white. And the reason I feel that way is because I know that in my heart, I do love things I shouldn't love in the world. And I don't want to be said to be an enemy of God, obviously. And I don't want to think that the love of God would not be in me. But it's a warning. This is not a judgment on the church because the church has passed through judgment in Christ. This is a warning to us to guard our hearts from this seducive spirit, this seductive spirit. Because if we lose our way and we lose our witness, then what good are we? And we are living in a time right now that we must have our witness um, clear before a watching world. So again, to live in the gray is not possible for us as believers because we know the way is narrow that leads to life. Jesus said, few are those who find it. So all of these are warning statements to us. They're not warnings that we would lose our salvation. That's not what I'm saying. If we are in Christ, we cannot lose our salvation. We are in him. But they are warning to us to lose our way and to lose our witness and, and to lose the ability to, to speak prophetically to the world because we have no light 
shining from us. In chapter 18 now, verses 4 to 8, well, let me, let me stop there for a minute. Let me just give you guys a moment. Does anybody want to respond or say anything to what I just said before I move on? I think the James 4 text, 1 John 2 text, are important to keep in the context of thinking of, of this Revelation 17 and 18 in texts. It's the call, and we're going to read it now in verses 4 through 8. It's the message of warning for the saints to come out of her, to come out of her. It says in verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest, see, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues lest these things that I'm speaking of affect your life in, in a negative way, where you lose your joy, where you become fearful, where you become haunted, where you become um, anxious, where you become, um, in your mind, you give yourself to things that are ungodly. It, that's, this is a warning for us to be careful. So we see Isaiah now, he's, he's quoting Isaiah, and Isaiah foresaw a future exodus from the exile that showed Israel that God's promise of deliver, deliverance was a call to separate from the, all of the defiles that they had come out of. In Isaiah 52, he's, he speaks of this, of, of separating yourself from what I brought you out of. This was the call to Israel as they came through out of Egypt. Separate yourself from that which I brought you out of. So now you can see why it was so grievous to God in the wilderness when Israel said, we want to go back. It's too hard here. There's not enough food. There's not enough water. Moses doesn't know what he's doing. You know, we're, our kids are, what are they? They have nowhere to, to live. We are living in a tent. You know, we had it better in Egypt. You see, this is what this is speaking of. It's not just speaking of Israel's unbelief in the wilderness. It's speaking of, of the call of God's people to come out of the spirit of the age, to come out of this, this demonic, uh, this cultural demonic deception that, that has been being propagated by, through, by Satan since all the way back to Babel and all the way through the Old Testament and even now into New Testament times. In Jeremiah 51, three times God calls his people out. Let's look at Jeremiah. Turn there with me for a moment. Jeremiah 51. So when you read the Old Testament, again, this is important. Read the Old Testament with the New Testament always before you in your heart and mind. You don't separate the two because the New Testament explains the Old Testament. You find the truth of the church in the Old Testament, but, it's, but the Old Testament's prophetic vision and callings are, are explained in the New Testament and in redemption and in salvation in Christ. In Isaiah 50, Jeremiah 51, in verses 6 through 9, he says, Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishments. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunk and interesting. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. God's sovereignty, he used Babylon for his purposes to make the earth, all of the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her and let us go each to his own country, for her judgment has reached up to heaven and has been lifted up even to the skies. Radical. Verses 41. Let's read those. 51, 41. How Babylon is taken, they Excuse me, how Babylon is taken, the praise of the whole earth seized. How Babylon has become a horror among the nations. The sea has come up on Babylon. She is covered with its tumultuous waves. Her cities have become a horror, a land of drought and a desert, a land in which no one dwells and through which no son of man passes. And I will punish Bel in Babylon and take 
out of his mouth what he has swallowed. The nations shall no longer flow to him. The wall of Babylon has fallen. And so when we read these te texts in the Old Testament, if our mind immediately goes to, oh, well, he's talking about Babylon, the city that Daniel was, was living in, because Jeremiah was writing during the time of captivity. Well, of course, there's a first all reference, a first context for that time. But he's speaking prophetically of what we're reading in Revelation. He's speaking prophetically of what has happened in the world in, in the spirit of the age and its activity in, in societies and cultures. And it says in, 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 in Revelation 18 that God has remembered her iniquities. That's an interesting text. God has remembered her iniquities. This is God's judgment and God's justice being delivered. He remembered her iniquities. It's not as though he ever forgot. But what, it, what it's saying is that, and I think this is important for us too. I, I put a lot of my own thinking, my own feelings in these things as I'm teaching and I'm praying. But what I feel, I, I, I pray this so often, God, how long? How long, Lord? How long before we see justice on the earth? I don't know about you guys. I get tired of lack of justice. And this tells me he remembers. He hasn't forgotten. God has not forgotten. But it's, it's in his timing, and he's at, he's at work. And this is God's judgment, and we're seeing this now being worked out in Babylon. So to the degree that she's glorified herself and lived in luxury, she will now receive like measure of torment and mourning. To the same degree that she has glorified herself and lived in luxury, she will now receive a like measure of torment and mourning. Rather than sitting as a queen, which he's, he depicts Babylon as seeing herself, she will now be seen as a widow in mourning. And this it was her boast in, in Isaiah 47. She, it says in Isaiah 47, Babylon says, I will be a queen forever. So this is the same spirit that Nebuchadnezzar was exhibiting when he stood on his palace uh, balcony and, and looked over his kingdom and, and said that he was this now a great God over this kingdom. It's the same self-satisfaction that we see in the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, verse 17, that, that she sees herself as being rich and wealthy and without need. But really, the Lord says she is blind and naked and, 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 and in great need. So it's, it's a matter, it's again, it's an issue of, of deception. And I think this is the powerful message through this whole chapter, guys, is the subtlety of deception. And the subtle way the world draws our heart away from God, if it can. And when we say the world, it's not as though the world is some abstract thing. It's, it's a spirit that's at work in it. So the question before us today really is this. What does it mean to come out of her? What does that mean? And how do we do that? And I, I wrote, this might be one of the most important and difficult questions we face as believers. First of all, you got to realize how important this is. How important this is. And again, if you look at all of the texts of the Old Testament that warn about the demonic seduction of Babylon and God's will that he will destroy it. If you, if you look in the New Testament about warnings of friendship with the world, then we come to the conclusion, this is a big deal. When we read in Revelation 18, the angel saying, come out of her, come out of her, another voice from heaven, come out of her, my people. I mean, it could have been the voice of God himself, most likely. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. This is an important question. So how, what does it mean, and how do we do it? And I, I've got just a couple of thoughts. Is it just a matter of the heart? Is this only a heart issue? Or is there something practical that we would do? What, would, what does it look like in 21st century America? How, how, what does this mean for us to come out of her with its wealth, 
and its ease of life and its luxury and its opulence. What does that mean for us? And then how do we know if we've come out of her? I think it's more than just a matter of the heart. I think it always it begins with the heart. But I think it's how we choose to live, too. And I don't think it has to do with how much money you have. Money is, is amoral. It is neither evil nor good. So it isn't as though wealthy people are automatically evil. It is, and it isn't as though to be poor financially is to be more holy. I don't think that's what it means. But I do think that money is a snare. I mean, Jesus said it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye, excuse me, for a camel to go through an eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. So he's warning about the snare of money. Paul warns to Timothy, he says, encourage those who are rich in this present age to be generous and to sow and to sow up treasure for the life to come. So I think money is a snare potentially. And I think I was thinking about this today to come out of her is obviously choices we make with what we give our mind and our hearts to on a daily basis with what we allow to go into our minds, what we allow to go into our hearts, what we allow to go into our eyes the eyes are the window for the soul, what we look at, what we listen to. That's part of coming out. Um, but I think it's also maybe how we choose to live. I think, I think God wants us to be content. I think he wants us to live simply. I think he wants us to live generously. I mean, if God has blessed us with a lot, I think he wants us to be willing to give a lot away. I think we need to be willing not to have everything the world says we should have. I think we need to simplify our lives. I think we need to be very diligent to encourage one another to guard our hearts. And again, it isn't to judge each other. It's not to say that someone who has planned well and has saved up and has financially made good decisions is, is wrong. That's a good thing. Proverbs teaches us that that's a good thing. But it's the fact that it's what holds our heart is always the issue. It's always what holds us. It's not what we own. It's what owns us. And so I just think we have to be so, so honest with ourselves. I know Kath and I, we talk about these kinds of things, you know. I mean, God's blessed us with not having a lot. <laughs> he really has. I mean, he's always met our needs, but we've never had a lot. We've always lived, you know, very simply because we haven't ever had a lot. We have a lot more than other people, but compared to many, we don't have a lot. But we've always known that this is God's grace on our life to keep us from that snare. And so we challenge and encourage each other to be content. And I just think to come out of, to come out of her is more than just saying, well, you know, I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to watch that. I'm not going to you know, buy, just do this. It, it's also, it's, it's making choices to, to really, to live maybe in a more generous and a more simple in a way than what we, what is common. And how we all determine that is individual. And we do not judge each other. We do not examine one another in the sense of condemning one another for what we have or how we do what we do. But we all must look at our own heart. And so, that's going to be important and encourage each other to, to live that way. Rick, can I um, ask if uh, coming out of her, could we also say if we walk by the spirit, that would also automatically mean that we're going to come out of her because the spirit would lead us in the right way we should live. Yeah. I think that's very true, Josh. Yeah. Okay. Um, the thing is, is that we don't walk by the spirit every single moment of every single day. And I think that we, I think it's, a, it's an attitude that we are to, to endeavor to live by for sure. Um, but my point, I think too, is that this deception is very subtle. And I think this, the, this, the culture that we live in is just 
continually hounding us to possess, to own, to buy, to increase, to hoard, to keep. Pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. And I think we have to fight that ruthlessly. So let's keep going. I don't think I'm going to make it tonight through it, but I need to. So if our understanding of Revelation is correct, which I believe it is, Babylon's fall will be total one day. But has it begun? Yes, I believe it has. Is God's judgment visible now in our time? Is it just a matter of economics or perhaps is, is it what Paul speaks of in Romans 1 when he says that God gave them up? Let's read Romans 1, 21 through 32. So I'm sitting out here in the dark, you guys, if it gets darker on me the next few moments. Um, my house is full of people, so I'm out here in the dark. But I know you can hear me, so that's all you need to do. Romans 1. You guys are familiar with this text, but read it in the context of coming out of her. And in fact, now with the judgment of God on Babylon, has it begun? Yes, it has begun. Romans 1, 21 through 32. Okay, it's getting too dark for me to read. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. Now we're talking about this fall already taking place. It's already happening. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to this honoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. There's this, the, the beast's lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up. There it is again. God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Now that's such an incredibly horrifying statement when God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. This, this is the haunts. This is the haunt of demons. This is the haunt of jackals. This is what he's being described in, in, in Revelation 18 is exactly what Paul is speaking of in Romans 1. And God giving them up is, a, is a, almost as though it's a, um, a, a pictorial uh, description of Babylon's fall, in a sense, of, of what happens in this progressive fall where God gives man over, gives man over, gives man over to his passions until it becomes a, a, a city of, of demons. So it's more than just a metaphoric city, more than a metaphor. It's a whole culture. It's a whole mindset. It's a whole lifestyle that we are to come out of. It's a whole um, picture of what God is judging and what God is bringing down. It's what has always been at work on the earth in the hearts of man. It represents the visible um, manifested working of the spirit of the age. Babylon represents the visible manifested working of the spirit of age, the age that elevates itself above God and seduces the hearts and minds of men, encouraging them to commit adultery with demonic spirits that are deceiving them. And then also then it persecutes and destroys the church. So we're talking about, this is the whole picture of Revelation. This is the whole picture of what God has been showing John through these visions. And now we are seeing it being brought down. We're seeing it being brought down. And the beasts represent the, 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 the satanic powers that have been working behind the scenes 
to bring the people of the earth to worship this lie. It is the lie of Genesis 3 that deceived Eve. It is the lie of Babel that's make a city, a name for ourselves above God. It is the lie of Pharaoh. It is the lie of Jezebel. It is the lie of Nebuchadnezzar. It is the lie of Herod. It's the lie of the Caesars. It's the lie of the Pharisees. And it is the lie of the spirit of Antichrist in our day. This is what we are being called to see, knowing that God is judging this, that he's using all sorts of means to judge it, and that he's calling his church to be awake and to come out of its grip, to come out of its grip. This is the sin that Lot's wife committed. Though she left Sodom, listen, though she left Sodom physically, it was still in her heart. And because it was still in her heart, just like Israel in the wilderness, looking back to Egypt, she looked back to Sodom. Listen, brothers and sisters, we, we have to come out and we have to ask God to keep us from looking back, from going back, from still wanting to, to go back to that which he has brought us out of. Amen, Rick. I found it some sad, you know, when I got saved, I got delivered to some things just powerfully and radically. And one day I felt my heart being drawn back to some of those things. And I just got so upset. Um, I just thought, no, 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 no. For me to ever go back to those would be like Lot's wife going, looking back to Sodom or, or, or Egypt looking, uh, Israel looking back to Egypt. What God has saved us from, brothers and sisters, we can never go back to. And what he calls us to come out of, we cannot ever look back to and go back to. We have to guard our hearts. But what is this ultimate safeguard? What ultimately safeguards us from the temptations and deceptions of Babylon? It's the cross. It's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is key, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, the cross has severed the world's affections from our hearts. We've died to the world in Christ. Now that is a finished work, but it is being worked out practically. So the power of it has been dealt with. That's why we have to know that. And that's why if we resist it, God will give us grace to fully keep ourselves free by his mercy and by his grace. I don't know. Does that make sense to you guys? It's the power of the cross that keeps us free. The power of the cross. It isn't my effort. It's not me willing it. It's the cross at work in me. It's the, it's the redemptive activity of God by his spirit keeping me from free from that which he has already delivered me from. Hey, Rick. Yes. Um, I was thinking about that, not sure why, this week. Um, I was wondering, you know, when, when we talk about Christ, we're all, we always, the cross is like the central theme. And I was just thinking, well, why not his resurrection? Why not his ascension? And the answer I kind of got just listening um, was that it was his willingness to die to himself, that the extent to which he would go to obey God, that that's what exalted him. And, and I guess for us, why would it be any different? Mm. You know, to what extent will we, um, what, what will it cost us to follow him? Will we take up our cross? Will we die to ourselves like Christ died mm. for, on our behalf? But he, he died to his own, um, I mean, certainly human wishes. He, he didn't really want to die on the cross, but he just, he withheld nothing from God. He will withheld nothing from the will of God. And I don't, I don't see how any of us can do any, any less. I, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right, Andy. That's very good. Yeah. I mean, he lived as an example for us of what it means to live for God. Mm-hmm. And you're right. His exaltation became, came because of his humility and his obedience 
And, and the word of God tells us that he will, if we humble ourselves, he will lift us up. So it's the same. It's true for us as well. And it is, it's absolute dependence on God. It's, it's absolutely um, pressing in every day to the finished work of the cross of living our lives in freedom, living our lives, as, as Josh said, by the spirit, um, living our lives um, in dependency on the grace of God every single day. And, and that's what keeps us. Again, human effort cannot keep your heart from loving the world. Willing it cannot keep your heart from loving the world. Trying harder will not keep your heart. You know, you could be a monk living in a mountain cave and your heart is still with you, you know, and the spirit of the age is still, it may not be bombarding your senses, but it's in your heart and mind because of being in living in this, in this world we live in. So that's not the point. The point is, is that our, it's the cross that sets us free and that's what keeps us. But we also need to encourage each other and challenge each other. And hold each other accountable in love. You know, how are you doing in this? How are you, how are you doing with this? You know, are, are, you, are you feeling, are, are you living free from, from the snare of the world? Let's try to go through this next section rather quickly. We're not going to read it um, or look at it in depth. But it's the lament, verses 9 to 24, to the end of the chapter. It's the lament of those that love Babylon. And they're looking at it and they're seeing its horror now as they see it for what it really is. They all admired and they all profited from it at one time, but now they are terrified of getting caught up in the destruction of it. They weep and they mourn and they put dust on their head, but they never repent. Have you noticed that? If people can be upset by things, but they don't repent, they can hate what's going on, you know, that, that there's sickness and there's disease and there's pandemics and there's disasters, there's, you know, earthquakes, and there's terrible things that happen on the earth, but they never repent. Because this is the heart of man. When it's a pattern of wickedness and hardness of heart we see throughout scripture, even when people know they are sinning, and even when they know that their destruction will be certain, they will not repent, they will not give up their sin. They will not give up their pleasure, uh, and or the wealth or the pleasure they gain from wealth, or from their sin. And it's interesting, they list these luxuries in verses 11 through 13, and the very end of those luxuries were the lives or the souls of men. That's what they were also marketing. I thought about slavery, trafficking, human trafficking, abortion, oppression of the poor and the weak by the strong and the wealthy. This is so, it's, there's, a, there's a, a picture here of people being um, um, somehow marketing, marketing lives. Lives become of a value to this demonic thing. Human life becomes um, somehow um, expendable in this, in this whole lie. And this was very true of Rome um, in, in, in John's time. This, this one author I'm reading writes, he says, commerce in human flesh is the last of Babylon's imports, the culmination of a decadent culture's ruthless pursuit of pleasure whatever the cost to others. And you, you can read the, the amazing, staggering amount of wealth that flowed into Rome through trade and the and opulent lives. I mean, it's beyond understanding the, the kind of uh, wealth that the, um, the Romans lived under. If I can see the, the words on the page here, I want to read this to you. Should have brought my phone out here. I could have put my. Oh, that's all right. I'm not going to read it tonight. I'll read it to you some other time. It's amazing. It just describes the, the way these people lived and the kinds of things they had. And it's, it's just phenomenal. So opulent. But it's a picture of this whole, uh, this whole um, deception. So when God's hand of providence just decrees judgment, the fall will be swift and completely and utterly final in its destruction, devastating. And this is a picture of, of God's, how God's wrath will fall on the rebellious world 
when the Lord Jesus returns. Verse 17 says, for in a single hour, all this wealth was laid waste. It's interesting that there's a, a question that's asked in, in, in chapter 18. Who is like the, I'm sorry, chapter 13. Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Which was a mocking of Moses when the Lord um, set his people free. When Moses in Exodus 15 cried out, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises and working wonders. And in Revelation 13, the beast is, the, the people of the earth mock by in the same way they're they're asking who is like the beast in the way that Moses asked who is like you O Lord and now in 18 they cry out they cry out what city was like the great city so this city that they at one time were were in awe of its greatness they now say they're they're terrified by its destruction and now this angel throws a millstone into the sea that shows the the permanence of of Babylon's fall. And again, I've got some things I was going to read to you that I'm not going to be able to read from tonight, but I, maybe I'll read them to you next week. So let's just look at and end here with Revelation 19, 1 through 10. There's a whole nother now response from another angel. And that we're commanded to rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you against her. Now, this is the triumph of the pure bride who is, is going to be contrasted with the, the destruction of the corrupt and false church, which is Babylon. It's the triumph of the pure bride, of the true bride, contrasted with the corrupt and the false church's destruction. And there are four hallelujahs, five hallelujahs, verses 1, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Repeated hallelujahs. And the word hallelujah is one of the few Hebrew or Aramaic words that we have taken directly from that language into English. It's a present day word in the church today, and it is a summons to praise God. It means praise God. It gives give, give praise to God is what it means. And it's beautiful in this chapter because it's a roar from heaven that is like the thunder of, of God's own voice. And I really believe it is like the entire heavenly company in heaven participating, crying out this cry of victory as Babylon falls, crying hallelujah. It's all of the angels. It's this four living creatures, which are these angels. It's the saints from both the Old and the New Testaments. And they're rejoicing when this wickedness is destroyed and righteousness established. And it is said that this judgment is true and just. And so, listen, God is glorified in judgment. God is glorified when he pours out his wrath on sin. This is to the glory of God. It's to the glory of God to judge the wickedness and to judge the, the demonic lies and satanic influences upon the earth. It is to the glory of God. And then another voice, it says it's deafening in its resonance, celebrates the arrival of the kingdom and the marriage of the lamb with her bride. And it is said to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of might, mighty peals of thunder. What is this voice? It is the voice of the redeemed saints. I love this. I was reading this. I started crying when I started reading this. I can just imagine this voice crying out. All of the redeemed, all of the redeemed crying out to the glory of God. Someone read it. I can't read it in the dark. Someone read 19, 6 through 8. Yeah, I can read it. All right. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife had made herself ready. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I mean, it's such an awesome thing to think of hearing the voices of all of the redeemed crying out to the Lord for his great work, his great acts, for his faithfulness. And it's just, it's just awesome. It's an interesting thing that the word verb, the verb there, the, the, uh, the word reigns is in the tense called the aortist tense. So if it were in a present tense, it would simply be affirming um, the eternal truth of God's sovereignty when we say the Lord reigns, okay? If I were to say to you, the Lord reigns, you would think of God's sovereign reign over all things. And you would think of that, okay, yeah, I know what that means. But the word here in the aortist is signaling the initiation of the actual reign of God, that the, the establishment of his redemptive and eschatological kingdom in its full and final phase. For example, it says when the seventh trumpet was sounded, we read previously, it was sounded, the kingdom of the world, listen, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So when that trumpet sounds, that's when it's final. That's when it's complete. And that's when the full reign of God will begin. I mean, I can't imagine what that's going to be like. It's so awesome. But that's what this picture is here in Revelation 19, um, when it speaks of the bride and, and of the lamb. And so we know that God has always been in control and he's always been reigning over all, even when it hasn't appeared to be so. God has been reigning over all. And there will be a day when his reign will be completely actualized and completely experienced. And it's going to be an awesome thing. And I think, listen, saints, we are going to be part of that cry. We are going to be part of that multitude crying, that, uh, crying out. That, that amazing um, cry of, of God's victory that we just read in, in Revelation 19. And so with the coming of the kingdom comes the wedding. With the destruction of the harlot comes the presentation of the bride. And so John's vision of the bride won't be fully seen until Revelation 21. But just as the harlot was mentioned in 14, and but not seen until chapter 17. So now the bride is announced before her entrance. So we're seeing again this, this, this thought of these visions that John is seeing all of these things repeatedly from all these different vantage points again and again and again. So now in verse 9 of, of, chapter, of chapter 19, we have the fourth of what are seven benedictions in the book of Revelation or blesseds, blesseds that are written, benediction or the blessedness, blesseds that are being written. And in this case, it's blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's us. It's us. And so this is, the marriage supper is going to be, this is amazing, the culmination of God's redemptive plan. I don't know what the marriage supper is going to be. I, it's hard to imagine this. Is this figurative or is it literal? Um, I, it sounds almost like it's going to be literal. Uh, Isaiah spoke of it in Isaiah 25. It's going to be a feast of joy, of food, of drink, of the redemption of God being realized in all of this multitude of people from many nations and tribes and tongues who worship the Lamb of God, the Bride of Christ, who sit before, who sit together with the Lamb that day and they celebrate the triumph and the victory of Christ over evil and over sin. And it says in Isaiah 25, very similarly what it says in, in, in Revelation, that he will wipe all the tears from our eyes, that there's not going to be any more sorrow. So this is going to be the day when everything that we have longed for will come to pass, when everything that our hearts have cried for will be realized, when everything that God has purposed will finally be actualized, when God's desire for his people, for his elect, will be finally, finally realized in, in all eternity. It's going to be an amazing thing. And so John is seeing this whole thing, and, and he writes this vision out, and he gives it to the churches to encourage the church to endure, to encourage, encourage the church to, to persevere, to stay holy, 
to keep their hearts pure, keep their hearts clean, to encourage the church to, to be steadfast through persecution, um, to encourage the church not to love the world, not to love the things of the world, to encourage the church to follow Jesus only. I mean, that's the whole point of the book of Revelation, to say God is with us, God is with us, God is in control, God is sovereign over all these things. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredibly powerful and beautiful book. And so we're coming to the end of it, guys. We're going to look next week at chapter 19, the end of chapter 19. And then we'll head into the very exciting and interesting and controversial chapters of 20, um, the millennium, talking about the thousand years, what that thousand years, we've already talked about what that is, but we'll look at that text. And then uh, 21, and then we'll end with 22. So pretty good stuff, man. But listen, the word of the Lord for you tonight, for me tonight, is come out of her. That's the word of the Lord. Come out of her, my people. And I just would ask you, as I ask my own heart today, what does that mean for me? What does that mean? Again, if I was a dispensationalist, I would think, has little application to me. I'm not. I believe it's the word of the Lord to the church today. Come out of her. And so I just want God to show us what that means. Amen.